Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the news from Ukraine, Russia, and Brussels as missiles rain down on Kyiv, the EU meets for a high-stakes meeting on Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin hosts an annual phone-in from Moscow. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 14th of December. One year and 293 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and live from the EU's meeting in Brussels, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, good afternoon, David. Hello, everybody. So last night was uh, characterised as recent Nights have been with more uh, aerial attacks across Ukraine, but centred on Odessa in the south and Kyiv, the capital in the north. So Russia apparently launched 42 drones across the south. Um, Ukraine's Air Force said it has shot down 41 of them, all Shahids, 131-136. Buildings damaged um, and injuries. The Air Force also said that six S-300 anti-aircraft missiles were fired um, at Hezon and well in the Hezon and Mikolaev regions, those uh, caused deaths as well as injuries. And then, as we were coming on air today, there so far today there have been three air raid sirens across Kiev, Kiev's uh, oblast in the north. Now, uh, the cyber attack that we talked about for the last couple of days, um, Russian hackers that attacked the uh, Kiev Star mobile network on Tuesday apparently gained access from an employee's compromised account as per that was from the um, the chief executive. So Alexander Komarov said his company had repelled more than 500 attempted cyber attacks since the start of the full scale invasion. Kiev Star, you'll remember, is the Ukraine's leading mobile data provider, more than 24 million customers. But I'm told by people in the country that the attack was aimed at all telecoms providers and possibly banks too. Two 
Ukrainian banks have issued statements saying that their IT response was effective, which obviously implies that they were swept up in um, in an attack, if not the same attack. Also suggests those banks that haven't said anything, uh, we don't know if they were if that was effective. There's always always interesting with with cyber attacks as to whether or not banks and, and other institutions come forward and say they have been hacked or, or and they've been successful or not because of the confidence levels. It it, it can then either damage or you know what what you might think is a statement to to shore up support can actually have the opposite effect. So just the fact that they haven't made a statement doesn't mean that they were compromised, but it does look to be wider than just a Kiev star. Separately. Uh, Russia apparently has put um, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence on its wanted list. So Karelo General Badanov, that we've spoken of many, many times, uh, he's been. They've said he's he organised the October 22 attack on the Kirsch Bridge and lots of other stuff. I mean, I don't think you'll worry too much about that being on a wanted list, seeing as how they've tried to kill him a few times and his his wife was poisoned using mercury and arsenic. I think she's. We think she's still poorly she wasn't wasn't killed thankfully but yeah so he's not going to worry too much about that what else is there a couple of other things so today's mod british mod statement was talking about the new vdv russian airborne forces formation that we spoke about i think last week if not the week before so they said they were talking about the 104th guards guards airborne division a newly formed russian parachute division so circa uh, eight to ten thousand people British MOD is saying it suffered exceptionally heavy losses when it's tried to dislodge Ukrainian forces from the Dnipro bridgehead. So they're saying the, the 104th Guards Airborne Division was decimated in early December trying to push Ukrainians off the left bank of the Dnipro. It said the formation was reportedly uh, poorly supported by air power and artillery, while many of the troops were highly likely inexperienced. We were talking about it because the newly installed head of it, Colonel General Mikhail Toplinsky, he is also the head of the VDV. He's a kind of the, the, I don't know, the sort of regimental colonel, if you like, of the VDV. So it was quite telling that he was put in charge of this new force and Russian bloggers a couple of weeks ago, this is why we were talking about it they were calling on him to resign because the force hasn't performed very well and has obviously not ejected uh, Ukraine from the uh, from the Dnipro. So let's keep our eyes uh, keep our eyes on that. Now then in terms, I'm going to talk a little bit later about a development today in terms of support for Ukraine from external supporters but just for now, we were talking yesterday about Norway's donation of NASAMS missiles to Ukraine. We think now a bit more detail on that, partly coming from Norway's own stockpiles, the rest delivered in a in a paid-for-industry, so buying-off-the-shelf type arrangement. Defence Minister Bjorn Graham said uh, this will be a major contribution to Ukraine's ability to defend themselves, and it's going to be a total of US$30 million US worth of missiles there. Australia, news from Australia, they're expanding their training program for Ukrainian soldiers. That's going up to about 125 million US dollars. Operation Kudu deploys Australian instructors into Britain to take part in the sort of multinational training program and all the exercises. Australian instructors so far trained about 1,200 Ukrainian troops. And Finland and the US are about to sign a defence pact, which is, I mean, Finland is joining. NATO. So there's that collective security pact anyway. But this mutual agreement will enable US forces to have rapid and unimpeded access to Norwegian, uh, sorry, Finnish bases and military storage facilities in the event of uh, of war. They're expected to sign that deal next Monday in Washington. And then just finally, 
Denmark is going to put to its parliament a new package of about 1.1 billion big B billion US dollars in terms of military aid for for Ukraine. So Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen, she announced a plan yesterday as she met um, President Zelensky, along with the leaders of Finland, Iceland, Norway and Sweden, all met in, in Oslo. Now, Denmark has already provided about $3 billion in military aid and about another half a billion in humanitarian aid since the start of the full-scale invasion. Worth noting the comments from Phillips O'Brien, the Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St Andrews. He said, pay attention to what's happening here. Denmark is offering a new military package to Ukraine worth about $1.8 billion in total. The US in its, he carries on, the US in its entirety since February the 24th last year has given $44 billion in military aid. This one new package of Denmark is worth 5% of all the aid the USA has given. I mention it because in the absence of well, we said the bill in Congress is still being held up, unlikely to get see anything there before uh, before the Christmas break. Same, same with the EU. Viktor Orban from Hungary is holding up holding up bits and pieces there, although we'll hear more about that shortly. But these bilateral arrangements whereby countries are, are sort of saying, well, you know, if we can't do it as the EU, we'll just do it, which has got to be a pretty good workaround, although it does lend a certain coherence to the whole thing anyway it's moving in the right direction and worth looking at the those percentages of obviously the the size Denmark's economy dwarfed by by the US but in terms of percentages of their GDP and defense budget very very significant contribution there and I'll take a little pause there David thank you very much Dom as you said there's lots to return to later when we come back to you well let's go to the, this incredibly important EU meeting. Joe Barnes, you're in Brussels, you're at the meeting. Uh, where are you calling us from? Actually, just outside of the security cordon of the meeting, because I'm just, I've popped out to find some sort of fresh air and a place to speak to you from. Uh, it's very busy and the whirring sounds of cars, etc. But yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. I guess we don't appreciate how important it is until you look at if the EU and the US's support becomes blocked, that's really problematic. So Vladimir Zelensky appearing via video link at the summit rather than in-person appearance. He warned European leaders that the decision they make today will go down in history. So the decisions to be made are, can Ukraine officially start membership talks to join the EU? And then there is also talks over a 50 billion euro financial support package for Ukraine which is basically to help fund the Ukrainian state over the next four years. And that's on the table. So the stakes aren't incredibly high. So Vladimir Zelensky, and I'll quote what he said, appearing via video link, today is a special day, and this day will go down in our history. Whether it's good or bad for us, history will capture everything. Every word, every step, every action and inaction. Who fought for what? And then he added, today is the day when determination will either be in Brussels or Moscow. People in Europe won't understand if Putin's satisfied smile becomes the reward for a meeting in Brussels. So what is he referring to? He is referring to the veto that Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, is currently wielding over those two decisions. He is seen as the principal, the main, the chief opponent of offering Ukraine political and financial support at this time. So Viktor Orban arrived at the summit in Brussels, held in the uh, Justice Lipsis and the Europa building of the European Council. And he told reporters that he was basically against those two packages. He said that Ukraine does not deserve to start negotiations or receive money from the EU's joint budget. 
So what do we know about Viktor Orban and Hungary? So Hungary has repeatedly delayed the EU's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine while not outright blocking it at times. He has just delayed it, stifled it, made it weaker, essentially. He vocally opposes sanction measures against Moscow. He and Hungary doesn't donate any weapons to Ukraine. Viktor Orban, he became the first and only EU leader to meet Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, this year when they were spotted shaking hands at a Chinese Belt and Road summit. And Hungary makes no sort of, he doesn't hide the fact that it does sort of huge amounts of business with Russia, still buying lots of fossil fuels, etc. And this is what Victor Orban had to say. He said, look, there is no reason to discuss anything because the preconditions are not met. He's referring, this is on the membership. The European Commission last month recommended that EU member states start these formal talks. It had a seven-point checklist And Viktor Orban says at least three of those uh, seven points of reform that Ukraine had to carry out haven't been met yet. So he's basically saying, look, Ukraine is not ready. It shouldn't be offered talks. And then on to the finances, he goes, in the long term, the bigger sum of money, my decision is it should go from outside the EU's budget. So he's talking about doing something external and not actually from the EU's coffers. So maybe an intergovernmental agreement. So what are we in for today? I'm slightly, I might be going too early, but I'm predicting that we won't have a decision. My story will um, run well beyond this sort of the print deadlines that we have at the Telegraph. And so it's a two-day summit planned in in Brussels, so today and tomorrow, but it could well go into Saturday. So Finland's prime minister said, as he entered the summit, I'm ready to negotiate. I've packed many shirts if it takes us a long time. He went on to say that our support for Ukraine is crucial because our security and existence as a credible union depends on it. Then, so largely leaders of the other 26 countries are supportive of EU, Ukraine's EU membership ambitions. So they basically got Victor Orban to break down. There have been some interesting sort of developments. Austria came out and said it was against a swift accession. So it didn't want Ukraine's membership process to be fast talked. You, you look at sort of Turkey, even though it doesn't really want to join the EU anymore, but has been negotiating to join for, God, nearly 30 years in total. Um, So what we're looking at now is there is a blockage, there is a panic. So EU officials on the sidelines are looking at coming up with a separate package of support, which would be an intergovernmental agreement uh, between member states that wants to commit money to basically as a bridging exercise to make sure Ukraine has funds for 2024. That would be more costly and harder to bring together and would basically be less stable than a proper EU level thing, given the international finances and borrowing money on the market stuff that I, yeah, my head is lost in that world. But yeah, interesting summit. Atmosphere is different. It's strange. People are obviously feeling that the pressure is really on. That's uh, what I'd say. Lots of lots of people um, are tense. They know what's at stake. And I'll stop there, David. Thank you so much for that, Joe. Could you just give us, I mean, you started there, but it'd be good to hear a bit more. Um, as you said, incredibly important summit, uh, tense atmosphere in Brussels. When, when you go back in, back through the security cordon, back into the meeting, what do you see? What, 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 what's happening? Are people rushing around in suits? Um, is, is, it, is it one of those summits where it's actually, there's far too many people for the building itself, so everybody's crammed up together. Can you just take us inside what you're seeing? Yeah, so we are stuck in a, um, a press centre, a press hall, which is in basically the main atrium of this building. It's a thousand uh, journalists, probably maybe more, sometimes 1,800. I think 
there was 17 or 27 Ukrainian journalists traveling, especially over for this moment to cover the news. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's overpacked. People are working, laptops, slow Wi-Fi, sort of all things that are characteristic of working at international summits. You'll get the occasional diplomats will pop down into the press room and then suddenly chats will turn into these vast huddles where they're telling you what the leaders are saying in the room, trying to get their positions across. No doubt when people start coming down, they'll be bad-mouthing Viktor Orban if he continues to block stuff because he's not the, uh, he's not the most favoured guy in the EU at the moment. So the Commission yesterday uh, did announce the release of 10 billion euros in blocked funds that have been that are due to Hungary but have been withheld over fears of its sort of democratic backsliding, erosion of democracy, its uh, lack of the rule of law there as considered by the EU. They were blocked and that was hoped that that would sort of help ease talks today, but it doesn't seem to have uh, changed Victor Orban's mind for now. But yeah, it's an interesting mix. Lots of sort of, yeah, lots of Ukrainians, lots of people waiting carefully to decide and see what happens. And yeah, lots of, bi- lots of busy fingers tapping away at their laptops. Thank you so much, Joe, for taking us inside the, the meeting in Brussels. Do come back next week and we can catch up on what's actually happened, how it happened and what the impact will be. Thank you so much, Joe. I know you have to run off to, to, to write something for, for The Telegraph. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Dom, we'll come back to you shortly, but let's just talk a little bit about Vladimir Putin's, well, it's his first major press conference since the war in Ukraine began. This is his three-hour end-of-year combined press conference and public phone-in to the Kremlin. This started at 9am GMT. That was 12pm local time in Moscow. Journalists and members of the public asked him questions. And just remember, the annual call-in marathon, usually does this every year, was cancelled last year and has returned this year ahead of the presidential elections that he is standing in March 2024. Now, just before we go through some of the quotes and questions, let's frame this. James Kilner, our regular guest and foreign correspondent, he was watching this and he gave me some pointers. He can't join himself. He does send his apologies. He can't join, but he gave us some quotes just so we can frame how we read this well. James told me, basically, Putin is using the war in Ukraine as the backdrop to his phone-in. The second question was a pre-recorded address by a group of Russian soldiers on the front lines wearing badges with Putin's face on them. Uh, They looked to be standing in a bunker, and you could, apparently, hear machine gun fire in the background. So let's go through some of the quotes. Vladimir Putin has said the war in Ukraine will only end when the country demilitarizes and is, quote, denazified. No surprises there. He said that the peace will come when we reach our goals, um... And he still called it a special military operation. Coming back to our goals, he said, they remain unchanged. I will remind you, it means denazification, demilitarization of Ukraine and its neutral status. He also said Ukrainian soldiers have failed everywhere in their counteroffensive. You can hear me just turning my pages. My laptop is broken, so I'm trying to reading this analogue. He described Ukraine's political leadership as foolish and irresponsible and said that Russian forces were advancing across the front line. He said our armed forces are improving their position on almost the entire line of contact. The situation of our troops is improving throughout. He also said, and this is interesting, there will be no additional mobilisation of men for the war in Ukraine. He said that 300,000 people were called up last year. He also said that Ukraine was freeloading and will eventually run out of Western aid because it manufactures nothing itself. He quote, they have been trying to maintain their manufacturing capability, but they have actually been importing things for free, freeloading. But it will come to an end sooner or later. A couple of other points. He spoke about Evan Guskovich, the WSJ reporter, the Wall Street Journal reporter, imprisoned since March 2023. The context of this is that today a Moscow court upheld a ruling to hold uh, Guskovich in detention until January. He was arrested in Russia completely spuriously, we we know, we believe, uh, in March this year on espionage charges. Putin said that he said he hopes for a, quote, mutually acceptable solution when asked if he would consider a prisoner swap 
for Evan Guskovich. He said, it's not that we declined to send them home. No, we want to come to terms and these agreements must be mutually acceptable and should be okay for both of the parties. He said that there had been dialogue with the US about Guskovich and he hoped for a solution. Quote, but the American side should listen to us and make a decision that would be satisfactory for the Russian side also couple of other bits and pieces. He, Vladimir Putin apologised to a pensioner who urged him to take mercy on elderly Russians and reduce the cost of eggs amid soaring inflation. He said, I am very sorry, please accept my apologies for that, adding that imports from Turkey and Belarus would increase supply and reduce prices. One thing to mention, and I know, Dom, we noticed this together before we came on air, was that in the background we saw quite a few critical text messages were displayed on screens at the press conference. One read, Mr. President, when you when will the real Russia be the same as the one on TV? Another asked, why is your reality at odds with our lived reality? Another said, don't run for another term as president. Make way for the young. Another said, this question won't be shown. I'd like to know, when will our president pay attention to his own country? We've got no education, no healthcare. The abyss lies ahead. Mr. Putin, unsurprisingly, did not respond to any of the text messages. So on this, I asked James Kilner, who's watching, what does this mean? Were they, is this genuine? Is this a gaffe by the organisers? He was fairly firm. He said, oh, planted by the Kremlin to create the image of genuine Q&A session. They've done this before. Remember, optics are everything. Importantly, the criticism was light, limited to text messages, not live TV questions, and didn't mention the war. All giveaways. Anyway, I think that's probably quite enough of Vladimir Putin's marathon question and answer session. Dom, did anything stand out for you from that? And if not, let's move on to your interesting morning at the Estonian Embassy. Yeah, well, you and I were chatting about those those comments, whether or not they were staged. I mean, they probably were. It was a bit of a cock up to actually put them on the on the wall behind him if you if you didn't mean to but they were quite punchy and even if the kremlin liked to put them up there phrases like uh, the abyss lies ahead and what have you now they might if they if it was staged and they they put them up there to show that how yeah you know, we're happy to take criticism from anywhere i mean these things do you've got to be really careful about about how these things are how these things land because some people might uh, even if they're not going to take that phrase for example the abyss lies ahead they're not going to suddenly sort of scratch it on a t-shirt and run out in the street shouting the abyss lies ahead but you know if you plant that seed in people's minds then it could be could cause trouble so i'm still not entirely sure whether it was totally staged and not um you know not captain cock up uh, again but um i think james is probably on the money there again these were uh, it's an annual event and last year it was notable that putin cancelled it because of the way that the war was going we made a big deal of it at the time because i think it was quite significant i don't think we should get too bent out of shape this year that it's back on we shouldn't say oh bloody hell that's because they're winning i mean this is sort of a, a return to what it was before um and actually it costs him nothing to do it and it's another another opportunity for him to spout off and if he didn't do it we would again say oh he's, he's worried about his domestic opinion so i don't think i don't think we need to, to get too worked up about the fact that it was it was on again it doesn't show that he's he, he's massively confident because he's He's deluded in his own confidence anyway. He believes what he wants to believe, so it, does, it matters not what the reality is. So, yeah, I, it's, it's fine. I've not dissected it in any great detail because I've been in the Estonian embassy, as you say. So those are just my sort of hot takes, if you like. 
Well, thank you very much, Tom. I'm sure we'll come back to this on Monday. It would be really good to get James on. Listeners will be aware that I've been covering it, but relying really on James to give that framing and give some advice about how we report it and how careful we should be. Obviously, we're aware that at the end of the phone-in, apparently Putin was asked a question by an, an AI body double. I believe that's going to lead the Telegraph website at the moment, So, or our coverage of the phone-in. So do look at that story. We haven't had time to get to it, I'm afraid. happened just as we were writing it up, just as we went on air. So we, I think we will return to that. It's an interesting thing. Dom, you said you'd been at the Estonian embassy. Um, why did you go? What did you hear? Yeah, so I was invited over there. One, two, let me think. One, two, three, four, five journalists. Five journalists invited to the Estonian embassy this morning for a, a briefing by the, their Ministry of Defence's permanent secretary, Mr. Kusti Salm, a chap I've met, met before. Good bloke. Big, beefy brain box chap. So Estonia, Estonia's MOD has released a document this morning. I've got it in front of me here. It's online. You'll, you'll be able to find it. It's, it's all, all been. It's all open source. It's called "Setting Transatlantic Defence Up for Success: A Military Strategy for Ukraine's Victory and Russia's Defeat." It's pretty short, twenty odd pages. Pretty punchy. Very well researched. Good stats, and they are basically setting out their assessment of numbers for starters about about the the amount of equipment that's available and the, and more importantly the kind of defense industrial base potential for regenerating both in Russia and Ukraine with with external support and they're making the they're making the point the top line if you like is they say that victory for Ukraine could come in 3 years they assess if the they've taken the Ramstein group so the 50 odd nation group of military support for Ukraine. So it's bigger than just NATO. It's bigger than the EU. It's, you know, it, the, when we talk about the regular monthly Ramstein contact group meetings, donating and pledging military aid for Ukraine, that's the that's their sort of building block that they're working from. And they've said that if the Ramstein group each committed 0.25% of their GDP annually towards military assistance to Ukraine, which could come out of their defence budgets, then they say that would generate, Estonia says that would generate 120 billion euros a year, which is more than sufficient resources to implement this strategy. And they say that that would, they could have victory, achieve victory in three years' time. Now, I mean, I'm going slowly because it's literally hot off the press and I've only just had all the quotes cleared, literally while we've been on air in the last few moments, I had the quotes cleared for you. So I will, I will try not to mangle them. But Estonia is saying that the Ramstein Group has a combined GDP of 47 trillion euros. Total commitments of military aid to Ukraine thus far are around 95 billion. So 0.2% of that. And they say at the same time, the defence budgets are 13 times bigger. The Ramstein Group defence budget, 13 times bigger than Russia's. So it's entirely doable. And if so far, Ramstein Groups have, have committed 0.2% of, uh, of GDP, then a regular commitment of 0.25%, as Estonia did this morning on the way in to the meeting that Joe was just talking about. The Estonian Prime Minister was uh, he gave a doorstep conference and they've committed to providing 0.25% of their defence budget, oh, sorry, of their GDP for the next four years to Ukraine support. So they're saying if everybody did that, then this can work. And they, the figures they put on it, they look at the, they've gone into the, the sort of defence industrial capacity and they say that they looking at what it, they can likely extrapolate, albeit with question marks over what might happen in the US with a potential second Trump presidency. But if an extrapolation from today with the, the figures that are that could reasonably be expected to come in, 
then they say that Ukraine can be supported for to see them through to victory. So Mr. Salm said some quotes here. He said, real leadership is always revealed when the room gets dark and we're in a situation now when it's starting to get dark. He said there is a consensus between the defense ministries and the intelligence agencies that Russia will regenerate. The only question is whether it's going to happen in three, four, five, six or seven years. But the consensus is that they will regenerate everything that they've lost in Ukraine and they will come back stronger. So he was sort of setting the, setting the case out for a coherent effort for everybody to step up here. He said Russia is able to generate about 130,000 soldiers every six months. Now, of those 130,000, he said only about 40,000 go into sort of formed, ready-to-go units. The rest are still in some areas of training or put as, as individual reinforcements. But they're only generating about 40,000 new form units, people in units every six months, and said the current rate of attrition is about 50,000. So Ukraine are killing and severely wounding about 50,000 Russians every six months. Of course, it's gone up slightly in the last few weeks around Avdivka, but taken as, a, as an average, 50,000. So the point he's making is, if Ukraine is able to sustain the rate of production of, of personnel and equipment um, and increase in line with what Russia is likely to be able to do with its economy that it's put onto a war footing, then it will be long and slow, but the, the maths are in Ukraine's favour. He said that criticisms of the external supporters for Ukraine have been slow to ramp up their industrial production was fair. But he said that's a good thing. Politically, if the attention or problem is in the limelight, it's a good thing because then prime ministers and defence ministers have to deal with it. He said the assessment, Estonia's assessment, is that by the early quarters of 2025, European and US manufacturers combined will get the yearly manufacturing rate of artillery ammunition, 155 mil artillery ammunition, in excess of 2 million rounds a year. And their analysis, Estonia's MOD analysis, is that the level of attrition that Ukraine needs to uh, affect on Russia can be sustained at around 200,000 rounds a month. So 2 million rounds a year comes just under that. So then they're talking about this way, saying we need to ramp it up, but we're not, not far off it. And he said, why is this 200,000 figure a month important? It's important because it's doable and it's affordable. It's not a Herculean effort. So um, I think that's about it there. What else was I? Well, yeah, sorry, just one other point. He's making the case there about about what the um, about the, the cost, 120 uh, billion euros a year. He said the European Union's response to the COVID pandemic was 807 billion euros, around 20 times more than the current level of military aid to Ukraine. So you know, look at an existential crisis such as the pandemic and the EU and others did step up. And he's saying, we can do it. We can do this. We just need a bit of a bit of resolve. We just need to galvanize around a group, an individual, somebody. We talked about this earlier in the week. Somebody to actually say, right, well, come on, then let's let's do it. He said, if we make a cost benefit analysis here again, putting up money for that cause will bring you the strategic stability return. Winning in Ukraine is mathematically doable. It's doable in terms of euros, it's doable in terms of sustaining the same things that we've done already. Victory can be achieved in three years. So, you know, not not an evidence-free cause for optimism and that optimism is bounded by saying we've got to, we've still got to do it i mean this is not happening at the moment needs somebody to get everyone by the scruff of the collar and say right are you up for this right let's do it then 
So back to the point I made in the updates earlier, it, it's terrific to see these the countries, Norway and, and Denmark and what have you, doing their own individual thing. And that is good. It's all going in the right direction. But it needs to be cohered. It needs somebody, be it, well, it's unlikely to be NATO, but somebody, EU, US potentially, or a European figure to say, right, I will lead this. I'll take this blueprint and we'll, and we'll, we'll make it work. That might be through the Ramstein process or it might be, might be an adjunct to it. But the maths are there. This was a very evidence-heavy, very data-heavy document. Very digestible, actually, even for me. So, you know, do go and have a look at it. And it sets it out in clear terms how the numbers, if people will stand together, external supporters for Ukraine, the numbers are very, very heavily in Ukraine's favour. But it needs that political will and political resolve to see it through. But all in all, a useful contribution david i think to the debate at the moment about where we are we, we it, it's allow is at the moment it's sort of drifting into prose It's allowing putin to make speeches about how it's all going brilliantly actually here's the data here are the the data to suggest that need not be the case but there are certain certain actions that have to take have to be taken to make it so but well worth a look david Thank you very much, Dom. Just very quickly, when you left the embassy after this session, how optimistic did you feel? Blimey. How optimistic? Well, so the first question I asked him, put it this way, so when, when we had the Q&A, I said, why have you produced this document? And, and he sort of looked a bit blank. And I said, well, if this is evident, if this is obvious to military and political leaders, then why aren't they doing it? And why hasn't somebody come up with it? Why aren't these conversations happening behind closed doors? Why have you had to produce a document that's gone public and for which you've got journalists in to talk about it? And so I said, I'm, is that not the sort of soft underbelly of the whole thing here, that political will? If this is going to take years, and this is what Putin wants, you know, if this takes years, then democracy says that, well, they could all be voted out of office next year, the year after, the year after that, or what have you. That's the, that's the brilliance and the weakness of, of democracy, that we can kick out elected leaders if we don't like them so was i feeling optimistic i th- i think i've oh got like a politician myself i think it's a very useful contribution to the discussion uh, i hope the discussion was already happening and this is this is providing a, a bit more data and a bit more analysis do i think there's a politician able to stand up and champion this and go for it I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd be very interested to hear the comments from, for example, Mette Frederiksen. She, her name was was linked to a potential successor to Jens Stoltenberg as the Secretary General for NATO. So she's a she's a heavy hitter in this in this area. And obviously, on the coming on the back of Denmark's nearly a billion, what is it, one point one billion dollar announcement today, she might be in a position to say something. I just I want to see momentum now. I want other people to talk about it this weekend. I want other people to. For it to be part of the debate rather than just another document that's, oh, yeah, thanks for that, and, and chucked aside. But I come back to that point, like, why did you feel the need to do it? And obviously, these documents don't just happen. This didn't just start today. This would have been in, in process for probably three months, I guess. So that implies that the very senior levels of Estonian government were sufficiently concerned three months ago that they needed to produce this. So I'm not a, I'm not a, an, an evidence avoiding fanboy of Ukraine, no matter what what the trolls will say in the in the comments. You know, I look at the evidence and I, I base my analysis accordingly. So, yeah, I am very glad it's out there. Whether or not I'm any more optimistic, well, that's for you know, the jury's still out on that one because I want to see other people's and people in very senior positions. I want to see their reaction to this before I start popping any sort of optimistic bubbles. 
Well, thank you very much. Dom, just one more quick question from me. You obviously spent quite a lot of time with the Estonians over the past two years. Did they not invite you to go winter swimming again, or is that something you'd be up for? They did. I spoke to the ambassador. So for those that haven't got a clue what Dave is wibbling on about, February the 24th, the the date of the full-scale invasion last year, it's also Estonia's Independence Day. And on February 24th earlier this year, um, I was invited along with with some other uh, journalists and diplomats and people in, in London to join the the Estonian ambassador at the Serpentine for a swim because they're, they're mad for their outdoor stuff and rolling around in snow and hit, hitting each other with birch twigs and all that kind of jazz. Anyway, so we went for a nice cold swim, all part of the sort of well, well, wellness and embracing nature and all that kind of jazz. It was bloody freezing. I made a film, took, took a film crew from here because I had a stupid idea of interviewing interviewing the ambassador in the water, which seemed like a great idea at the time from a nice warm office, but actually when it comes to it and they have to take an extra 30 seconds to put another lens on or whatever they did it was horrific anyway they were going to do it again next february but apparently the park has said they're not allowed to do it it's something about not what the the park is there for i don't, I don't know so unfortunately no no more uh, no more frozen swimming for dumbbells next year david thank you very much for that dom well let's go to our final thoughts then dom i mean don't worry, I won't ask you for a long one today, but taking all of this together, wh- where do you think we are coming to the end of December 2023? Well, OK, so this week's Defence in Depth goes up tonight at about 6pm um, on, on YouTube, London time. Uh, it's going to be the last one of the year and the last one of the series. We're going to take a little break. So I've done a kind of reflective there about where we are. I've said that 2023 um, has been a year of questions where Ukraine was asked what it's militarily capable of and the counteroffensive fell short of what uh, of the gains it hoped to make clearly they would have taken a lot of lessons from the counteroffensive but there's no denying that it didn't get geographically as far as as they'd hoped at all so so there are questions there there's questions about international support before and during the counteroffensive but especially after it now there was a sort of euphoria wasn't there before the counteroffensive there was almost this sort of blithe oh once that happens it'll all be over by almost first world warish it'll be over by christmas so there's big questions here for the international external supporters of ukraine it's like you know are you are you serious you up for this you're in this for the long term because you've got an idea now about what this is going to look like you know your your people and this contribution today from Estonia's MOD is a is a brilliant document. There are some numbers now, and we're talking we're talking early 2025 terms. We're not saying the next few weeks. We're not even talking spring summer 2024. We're talking years here. So you know, questions for you, international audience: Are you up for this? And also, I think there's questions for all of us individually about things like: Do we have the right to be fatigued? I remember that. Um, the interview did with Tim Snyder a couple of weeks ago, where he said we, we outside the country do not have the right. I disagree with him on that one. I think we do. I think it shows that our moral compass is in the right place and functioning correctly. I put it all in context. But yes, I think we do have the right to feel exhausted, fatigued, frustrated, angry, as long as we keep going. We don't give up. So I think 2023 has been a year of big questions. They will obviously endure into 2024. But I think... There's, I think there is a, a, a slowly coalescing idea that we that somebody needs to step up here and start making some some pretty good speeches. You've seen President Zelensky out in the US. He's probably going to be slightly disappointed that reaction he or that he didn't get the response he wanted in his US trip this week. But I think now's the time for leadership. We need leaders to step forward. We need leaders to to make the case to their publics about why we uh, why this is our vital interests are at stake here. Why this needs to cost us money. Why we need to 
if they go with this plan from Estonia, put 0.25% of GDP towards Ukraine for the next few years, uh, make those commitments now. So we need people to to make the case and, and win these arguments. And I, I just feel that this is starting to come together. And so early in the new year, I would think that there will be there will be political moves. There has to be because it, on the moment it's just be it's just drifting slightly. And the the information space, to use a very wonkish term, is being filled by the Russian narrative. So I think there will be Western politicians. It's a bit like you know the like like toddlers in a way. It's like you know you eventually have to drag them to it. Like come on, can you attend to this, please? I've told you to clear your room now four times. Can you get on with the speeches, Ukraine? Okay. So I think they will eventually step step forward. And what they have to say, obviously, we do not know. But yeah, a lot of questions in 2023. And I think the answers will come pretty soon in 2024. But yeah, I've thrashed out those thoughts to a greater degree into, in today's final Defence in Depth out this evening. Just a quick message from me. Huge congratulations from Ukraine The Latest and The Telegraph to our wonderful colleague, Defence Editor Danielle Sheridan, on her getting engaged. Congratulations, Danny. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter, You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.